Man, it's so good to be with you guys. Um, not on behalf of Jenny, because I know we know a lot of you, but we just want to say it has been such a gift to be in this community over the last seven weeks. We feel so welcomed and loved. We've known the prayers that have been over us before we came and that we haven't heard while we've been here, many prayers over us while we've been here, which have been genuinely life-changing for Jenny and I, and we've been so grateful, so thank you. Um, that worship this morning, I was just, I was thinking to myself the whole time, like, how am I going to speak after this? That prayer time, and then, fortunately, George came up, and I said, ah, oh, pray. I, how am I going to, how am I going to, you should take it. Well, to be fair, I didn't know that you were doing a skit or whatever. But I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, and, uh, okay, I, I don't have as much time, so I am going to blitz through this. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be jumping around a bit. And he read the Beatitudes. We're not going to get through all the Beatitudes. I know, take a deep, sad sigh of relief because that would take too long. We could do a whole series just on that. I'm going to teach on one Beatitude this morning. But before, I wanted to set you up. How many of you have been here for the last several weeks as we've started this process of the Way of Jesus series? Okay, so a good chunk of you. This will be a review for most of us. Um, but over the last several weeks, we've been exploring what it means to be men and women who take the life of Jesus seriously. And I think that's a little different because for most of the church, we certainly take his death and resurrection seriously, right? Salvation, deliverance. But what does it mean to be men and women who take the life of Jesus seriously? And if you don't get what that means, that's totally okay. You'll get that probably by the time I'm done, I hope. Um, but as, as followers of Jesus, we believe that Jesus has the best information available on what it means to be human, what it means to mourn, to celebrate, to laugh, to play, to rejoice, to deal with betrayal, to forgive, to love, to be compassionate, to be in relationship. We think he has the best information on what it means to be human. But it's not just that. We also believe he is the fullest picture, right, in Hebrews, it says the hypostasis, the essence of God, enfleshed in human form. So not only is he the fullest image of what divine life in human form looks like, he's the very character of God. We look at Jesus, we see the character of God, a God who is love and compassionate and merciful, right? So we put them together, and we have these two beautiful realities that we find in ourselves, that we are both, both dust and deity, and Jesus demonstrates what that looks like in fullness, what a human life, even a human life filled with suffering, what abundance it can produce when the life of God is filling it. And that's the vision. That is the vision that we cling to. That is the way of Jesus, the life of God that we, and this, we believe, is offered to us right now, not after life, not after we die, but right in this moment. John tells us that is eternal life, to know you, the one who sent me. That's the words of Jesus. We believe this life is offered to us right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's in the air around us, as Dallas Willard says. And we can choose this life. We can choose to participate in the work of the Spirit. We can participate with our own formation through our obedience and alignment with that life because we've been given freedom. As Johnny said a few weeks ago, if you remember that um, fantastic video that he showed us 
of the chimps. Anybody remember that? That totally compelling, non-cheesy video of the chimps <laughs> coming to freedom, seeing sunlight for the first time. Johnny asks us the question, what are we going to do with our freedom? We've been given, which life are we going to choose? Are we going to choose a life that our culture says is best? Right? That you earn, you strive, you go for it, you work hard. Yes, we're all about working hard, but that's how you form your identity. Are you going to go for the life that your family may have set out for you? This is how you succeed. This is how you find identity. Whatever tribe, maybe it's an entrepreneur that you like, a book that you like, an author that you like, are you going to put your trust in that vision for life and choose that life? Or are we going to choose the life that Jesus has for us? The one that we claim we're trying to follow, not just with our whole hearts and theology, but with our whole life. Does that make sense? I'm belaboring the point, but does that make sense? But we who follow Jesus, we're striving to align our whole lives so that little by little, that tomorrow I might be able to choose the way of the kingdom of God a little bit more than I did today. And over time, with practice and community, and the work of the Spirit, don't ever, let me, don't ever get me confused saying that this is just by our own power. It is not as a work of God. But we respond in obedience to the work of the Spirit. And those two things form us, form a life that makes something beautiful out of it. We talked about the way of freedom. And last week, John Mark focused on this idea of rest. How many of you were just challenged and wrecked by that? Sabbath. I went from that sermon into this chaotic week of being in London, and if you've never walked around London with a double stroller and two little kids, it does not feel restful. <laughs> Just gonna, at one point, I'm carrying Jude and the stroller with their escalators broken down. I mean, it must have been, I don't know, 150 steps just like stumbling my way down. You know when they get to those long elevators, you're just like praying it works if there's not a lift? No, it's not. Fortunately, we had like one person in the week we were there that was really helpful. I was like, oh, let me help you carry that. Everyone else just like snarled at me for being in their way. Not the way of the kingdom. But last week, John Mark focused on, on rest. The way of Jesus is a way of rest, reminding us that God is a God who does not enslave his people. But he orders us, he commands us to be a people of Shabbat, a people of Sabbath, a people who rest and delight and don't construct their identities by the 80-hour work week. Sometimes you will work that much, maybe. But you cannot find your identity in your life in that. And he says, you need to be reminded that you can do nothing well and still be the people of God. Just to rest, to cease. What a challenge. I remember the line that he said to me, or he said to us, not to me, I wasn't special. He just said it to everyone. He said that tired people aren't loving. And a part of my soul went, ah, oh, you've been tired for like four years. How unloving have you been? Partly we have two young kids. But partly I construct my life by these good things that I'm doing, even great things, churchy things, religious things. And I'm tired by it. I'm carrying a burden that's not light. It's a burden that I'm trying to hold. And he reminded me that the way of God, one of the best images we see of Jesus is that he is a person of rest. And the way of Jesus is a way of rest. That one of the markers of the life of Jesus is a life of Sabbath rest, that Jesus was a man on a mission. And without, he, without a doubt, he carried the heaviest load ever placed on human shoulders. The largest weight 
the biggest vocation ever placed on human shoulders, and yet he was not in a man, he was not a man who was hurried. What? He wasn't a man who was hurried. Sorry, my chapstick is getting all over my pocket. Let's just get rid of that. Um, and uh, I'm in a hurry, I guess. I, I, feel, I feel lucky that right now I don't have this like sun on my forehead. I feel like this is God's grace over me because I get hot enough when I preach. Um, but to be a person with that responsibility and to be unhurried, one of my favorite stories is a story that Dallas Willard tells or someone tells about Dallas Willard, who's a teacher, a philosopher, and a follower of Jesus. And they said, Dallas, if you, could, if you could identify or name Jesus or just describe him in one word, what would that be? And he takes a moment and pauses, because that's what people who are unheard do. And he slows down and he thinks and says, relaxed. If this follower, this 70-year, 80-year follower of Jesus... The lead, like the head of the USC, which is an amazing school in California, the head of their philosophy department, this amazing biblical scholar, this amazing philosopher, he says, describe Jesus in one word, and he says, relaxed. Oh, the conviction. <laughs> How unrelaxed do I feel so often? But you will see and read Jesus differently if you read through the Gospels and put that mind, that word in your mind. See how unhurried, see how he lingers at meals and how he takes rest. Oh, and that is a life that we long for, right? It's so hard in our culture. Well, maybe it's easy in our culture, rather, because saying that message to a culture like ours, frenetic, fast-paced, wall-to-wall with things and schedules and tasks and entertainment out the wazoo, hours you could fill your time with podcasts and everything, right? Preaching a sermon like that, a message like that, to it's like, it's like a freshwater spring to people wandering through the desert. It's like, oh, yes. Of course we want rest. At least most of us. Of course we crave the abundant life, that slow, unhurried life, and it's being offered to us. But if that's the case, if we really want it, then why do so many of us, and I'm the first to stand here and say that I've preached that sermon series over months why am I the first to hear that powerful and profound message of freedom, of abundance, of rest? I get compelled by the message, and it somehow speaks to this inner longing in me. And yet a couple weeks later, I'm back to rescheduling and reordering my life. I've taken it firmly out of the hands of Jesus, and I've said, you know what? Thanks for the lesson. I got this. Why? Do you guys have backseat drivers in this? <laughs> Are they sides? I don't know. I was... Driving here has been interesting and fun. Um, but it's unbelievable that I so quickly can be compelled by a message like that and yet find myself slipping back into the same patterns, the same routines, the same things. Why do we hear that message and do that? I feel like that's what we're going to be hitting on today. But I think the problem is that we take this new content, right, we're a content culture. We take this new content and we try to place this content, this compelling teaching, into our old way of building and holding our life. We just insert it. We just add it. We just add it to what we've already doing because for most of us, that way of living has pretty much worked a little bit at least, right? If you're in this room, you can at least 
pretend well enough to be around a group of people. You probably have some friends. You might be holding down a job. You might be succeeding at your job. You might be crushing it, killing it, whatever language. That's a very American thing. We say, like, you're killing it. You're crushing it. I don't know why we do that. How about you're just like, you're doing really well. That's much more of a British. Quite well. But you're crushing it. Maybe you're crushing it. That's great. But if you're here, that's probably part of it. So you don't have to. But we make that common mistake that this consumer culture, this, this culture of wealth and privilege and resource that our Western world is, and we make the mistake of thinking that if we just add something to the mix, if we just add a little bit thing, our life will work well, that it will soon be running on all cylinders, that just one podcast, one book, one lecture, one sermon away from everything going perfectly. Problem is, that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's not how Jesus' teaching works. The gospel is not an additive. It's not something you can just sprinkle in and say, woo, kingdom of God. Right? Your controlled life plus Jesus does not equal the kingdom life. It doesn't. It equals your controlled life maybe with some new language. Does that make sense? And this is the sin, the curse, the claim. This is the, the hardest thing that keeps people from coming to Jesus with open hands. We think just a little bit more and the hardest in this culture to understand and enter into the life with God. We can't just add our way there. We can't just upgrade our software. We have to throw out the whole thing and start from the ground up. And that's what this is about. That's what these Beatitudes are about. But we're not foreign to this idea Right, this, when, I, when I start thinking about this metaphor, this image, it's so, it's so clear. I think about my first year of marriage. For anyone married in the room, you'll know what I mean. I was probably a little naive. I don't think I'm, I think I'm an average smart person. I'm not too naive, too daft, I guess is a better way of saying it here. Um, I didn't just think, no one says that in the States, <laughs> but I like the word, uh, and I think I'm a little bit of an Anglophile. I kind of like love this place, love my wife. And I lived in Northern Ireland for um, a year, and I just kind of soaked in as much of that as possible. Um, but all to say, I don't remember what I was going to say, actually. What was I going with this? First year of marriage. Thank you. This is why Jenny's here. She always holds me. <laughs> my first year of marriage. You can't possibly think going into marriage that it's like my bachelor life right? Five, I'm an extrovert, strong extrovert. Five nights a week, out with different groups of friends, doing whatever I want. You can't think that life plus Jenny equals marriage, right? <laughs> Somewhat I did believe that. And let's just say our first year of marriage was a great learning opportunity. <laughs> like a week in, like, oh, this is different. Okay. <laughs> That's right. We, you have to do everything over, the way you value your money, your time, your schedule, where you live, how you live, how you cook, how you clean, right? Hopefully one of you does that at least. <laughs> but you can't, you can't start there, right? To use Jesus' own metaphor, you can't sprinkle yeast onto already baked bread. That would be disgusting. <laughs> you have to put it into the dough. Let it rise and then it bakes and then it becomes bread. That's what the kingdom of God is like that has to go from the very foundation, the very beginning. 
but we just want to add it. We want to sprinkle it on top of the bread that we're baking and say, oh, that's Jesus' life. No, it's not. Does that make sense? So when we come to that passage, that beautiful passage, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. There is a group of people that Jesus is talking to in that text and a group of people he's not talking to. Can you spot who he's inviting? That's right, those who are thriving. Those who think they can steer and direct their lives because the people who aren't convinced, who don't feel weary and burdened by their own life, either they're naive to what's really going on or they haven't lived long enough to feel the suffering and pressure and chaos that life will inevitably bring. So this is a text, this is a passage, this is an invitation and call for those who feel crushed by life. And it doesn't have to be big crushes. It could just be the smallest of things. Why do I feel so burdened? Why am I not thriving? Why is that good life that I've longed for as a Christian, why is it not in me? That's who he's inviting. Jesus knows that if you haven't come to this point in your life, this point that his kingdom will not make sense to you. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, to go back to the Beatitudes, will not make sense to you. That this way of life, this upside-down kingdom, that power is service, and that weakness is the place of transformation, that the world cannot understand. You can't get there if you begin with, you know what, I got this. Take a little, take a little Jesus here and there, but I got this. My life, it's ordered my way. We can't do that. This is the doorway into that life, the doorway into the kingdom of God. His words will just be additive if you're not there. So he starts his sermon looking around at the people that are gathered in this mountaintop in Galilee. He looks around at them and he sees the crushed, the broken, the people that the religious leaders have cast out. You're never going to make it. You're not wealthy, right? You don't have resources. There's no way you're going to keep this law. And he looks in their faces. And you could just feel the oppression, right? This is a people who are exhausted by religious racing that the, the Pharisees have placed on them. They're people who've been forced into basically servanthood by a Roman imperial oppressor whose boot they live under. And he comes to them. These are, uh, these are people who at one point owned the land and now worked the land for a day laborer's rage. And he looks at them and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Do any of you feel like you lack the resources, spiritually or otherwise, to please God? Do any of you lack the resources to make today work, to have enough money to pay for meals for your kids? Do any of you feel crushed by life? Do you, are you spiritually bankrupt? Poor in spirit, translate that way. You've come to your end. Oh. Well, then I got good news for you. This kingdom, this way of life, this will be freedom for you. And come to me because I will show you how to live a life, even in light of that brokenness, to abundance and fullness. 
So whatever this, the Beatitudes are, I don't know for many of you, if you grew up in the church like me, I was taught that the Beatitudes are these positive qualities in the kingdom of God, but they're not. They're the one requirement to enter this way of life. You want to know what that requirement is? It's not religious laws. It's not, let me raise the bar and raise the bar and be more and more holy and do more and more laws. Jesus throws the bar on the ground and says, are you the lowest here with the least amount of resources? Your life that you've steered is going nowhere or it's gone to hell. Well, this place is for you. And the only requirement is to recognize that you don't have the resources, that I am bankrupt, that my way of life, maybe not now, maybe I haven't betrayed my family, maybe I haven't ruined a company or ruined broken relationships or gone, become an, an addict, right? Whatever it is. Maybe it's not that extreme, but it's just those small ways that we slowly lose that light and life and we stop to see that life is no longer a gift, but it feels like a burden. And he says, if you're there, then you, I will make sense to you. But if you're still under the illusion that your way of life your way of controlling and managing and budgeting and scheduling and doing relationships and dealing with your hurt, dealing with your brokenness and pain. If you think you're the better manager, then you know what? I'm not going to make sense. And that's a hard word for Jesus, but he loves you enough. Because we, we have to realize that no matter how gifted or smart or talented or wealthy we are, we cannot steer our life to wholeness. Does that make sense? And Jesus, until we get to that point, can do nothing with our lives. He can take the worst of the worst, the most broken, the most sinful, the most, even say, vile, and he can turn them into saints. And he will remind them every day, you are saints, you are saints, and he will love them into sainthood. But if they don't come to that first place and say, I don't know what I'm doing, I can't manage my life anymore, until you've gotten to that point, he can do nothing with your life. You see, the way of Jesus is the way of brokenness. Jesus knows the bleakest of resources can be transformed in the kingdom of God because entering into that story, the thing is, anyone who's at that point, you come in and you're not alone. Now you're salt and light. The Beatitudes, and he's your salt and light. Now you have the resources of the people, in, the resources of the people in this room alone could change Nottingham. Not just financially, I mean the gifts, the talents, the vision. And he's inviting all of you into a family. That you don't have to carry this brokenness alone. You get to be family to one another, right? Think of the few groups. You get to be utterly vulnerable at every step of your life without shame, without burden, without a sense of, oh, I can't let anyone see that. This kingdom says, no, no, no. You begin by bringing around people who can hear that and hold you in that place and walk you into sainthood. Does that make sense? Do you feel that? I'm getting a little hot now. <laughs> and some of you, <laughs> what? <laughs> some of you don't need me to continue to say this. Some of you know the sting of life. I say those things right now, and the first thing you hear is, oh, that betrayal. Oh, that ruined marriage. Oh, that separation from my family that ostracizing of the brother, the sister, the losing the money, right? Whatever it is, the addiction, whatever it is, you think of that and you go, yes, I know, and you're here because of that. But some of you are probably like me, you're a little slower. I've spent most of my life in the church. I did my undergraduate, 
then I did my master's in theology, in religion, in leadership. And I will say somewhere between 22 and 28, I finally had this revelation that I am ordering all my life, even with good theology and good scripture, but I'm the one doing it. And it took me a gracious wife and a lot of hard conversations and a lot of painful brokenness to realize, ah, man, you are steering your life. You have it wrapped up in good Christian things like vocational ministry, like preaching, like worship, like songwriting for the church. You've wrapped your life around that. That's all for you. That's all for ego. Everything you're doing is so that you don't have to feel insecure, unloved, and unlovable. See, one of, one of, the, one of the scars that I carry, um, that I still carry it, and it's just crazy how it comes back. When I was a teenager, I, um, I, I played water polo and I, played, and I swam into, high, into college. And I was, I was a bit of a chubby teenager, like a lot of teenagers are. I'm not going to explain that away. But when you, play, when you swim and play water polo, you can't really hide it, right? You guys have water polo here or swimming? You wear a bathing suit. So you're an insecure 13, 14-year-old, right, who's, I mean, the laughingstock at times of your team. And for five years, I was bullied. For five years, I was called names that I still hear. Almost 20 years later, I still hear those names in my worst and insecure moment. I look in the mirror and I go, oh, that's who you are. You're unloved and you're unlovable. And everything I did, every witty comment, every friend, every friend I cared for, every degree that I did, every time I read a book was a way of covering that up and saying, you know what, I don't want to deal with that. And so I let everything else cross that threshold. But I said, my pain, my brokenness, my insecurity, you're going to stay right here. Because if I bring that to attention, then God has to deal with it. And I have to deal with it. And why would I want to do that? And I'm not saying I figured this out, but I'm saying that was my moment of conversion. That was my moment when I was like, oh, Lord, you can have this. I, don't, I, can't, I can't fix this anymore. No amount of dieting or exercise or degrees or whatever the thing is that you judge your standard by will fix that sense in me that I'm unloved and unlovable. And I just have to stand there and, and open that. And you know what I was met with? A community who spoke blessing and peace and encouragement. I, wear the, I wore this shirt today because the church that we left when we came here, um, the elders gathered around before we left and prayed over us, and they, they blessed us with words of blessing and encouragement. And they took this shirt, and they wrote all, you can't see it, and I don't want to take my shirt off, partly for the reasons I just told you, um, all the blessings that they wrote and spoke over us are in the inside of this shirt. So I can wear it and be reminded. And they put these beautiful hands praying over your back. So it feels like I always have the support of our loving community. It's one of the most beautiful gifts I've ever been given. And I'm so grateful for those people. But I found that I could actually begin to talk about those things. But that as long as I was ordering and steering my life, I would never have freedom. Never know what it's like to be loved and lovable. Never hold that brokenness open. Because that is, if there is one requirement in the kingdom, it's that we're all broken. And if you're not there, it's like the rich young ruler. Right? You know the story. 
This wealthy young ruler comes to Jesus. Lord, what do I have to do to inherit the, the kingdom of God? To inherit eternal life. I think he says the kingdom of God. He says, oh, keep the commandments. He goes, oh, since I was a young boy, I've been doing that. I've been doing those things since I was a young boy. And you know if you've studied Torah that anyone who can say that doesn't understand Torah. Because it's not about keeping the commandments. It's about love and mercy and peace and generosity. And Jesus knew this man had his security blanket. He had all the laws, and yet he had this bank account. At any time you need to just tap into it to feel a little secure, he could. And he knew that he couldn't give that up. Because when we, a wealthy culture, with all the privilege and resources, we just want to add to our lives. And Jesus says, you got to drop all of it and let me put into your hands. Sometimes that might be wealth. You're the type of person. God knows I'm not. I don't want to win the lottery. I don't know what I would do with it. I'm bad with money. You're the type of person who can steward that for the sake of the kingdom in ways that are unimaginable for me. It's not to say we're all stricken with poverty, but for that man, that was his one security blanket that kept him from that sense of brokenness. Because he could do it. He could keep the laws by himself. Why would he need the brokenness of entering the kingdom of God? But Jesus can't have his life. You know, the people who I've come to, and I'll finish with this, the people that I've come to see this in as the best model are addicts. People struggling with addiction. And as I've studied just through friends and family who've struggled with addiction over the years, I've come to realize that this, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're spiritually bankrupt, but the kingdom is yours if you get there. Those are the first three steps of the 12 steps. If anyone's familiar with the 12 steps, I'll read them to you. First three steps of the 12 steps. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unimaginable. Just substitute alcohol for a second. We admitted we were powerless to not control our lives however we wanted, and they became unmanageable. We have to get there. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We knew someone else had to save us. We needed the resources of the kingdom of God because we can't do it ourselves. The third step, and we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. We've realized the life in Jesus that we long for, that he has the resources to deliver us. And all we have to do is bring in our brokenness to say, you know what? Today, this is what I'm giving you. And I want, I want you to hear this. This isn't a one-moment thing. This isn't going to happen one time in prayer. This isn't going to happen at a conference. This is going to be a thousand, a million little decisions that you wake up and say, Jesus what am I clinging, what am I grasping onto right now that you're saying is keeping me from receiving life? Can I lay it down? Just, just for this minute, maybe this is how addicts do it, literally. Just for an hour, just for a day. And then 30 years later, you realize, oh my gosh, look how free I am. What if today you can make those decisions? And I think that's what's happening. I think there are people in this room who as I'm talking, you're like, oh, I know that the Spirit is beckoning me to lay this down to admit this brokenness and to give that over to him. It might just be one small thing. And I would just love to have a, a, some time of prayer. If, if the band could come back up, I just want to lead us through a few responses because the way of Jesus is a way of brokenness. 
But this is the call. This is the good news. People who are, you know, people have everything they want. They don't need good news. But we need it. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus already, then I think the Spirit is urging exactly what I just said. Maybe that one thing that you're just grasping onto, and he's asking, you know what? Just admit it's not working, and let me take what you have, the meager thing you call a life, let me take that for a minute. Just see what I can do with it. That broken relationship, right? That person who keeps coming back, that friend or significant other, that for some reason, even if it's toxic, you can't escape it. And maybe he's saying, this is time for you to be free. Maybe it's your money. Maybe he's asking you to be so generous and to trust that you will be okay, that the world is safe if he is your shepherd. You can actually be not for want. Hmm. Or maybe you're here, just close your eyes for a second. I just want you to hear these. Maybe you're here and you can't imagine trusting your pain, the betrayal you've had, the sense of being a victim that you've had. You can't imagine giving that over to Jesus. You can't imagine being free from that because it's become a part of your identity. Who am I without this brokenness, right? Like the lame beggar, who am I if I don't have this mat to beg from. And Jesus says, take your mat and go, because if you leave that mat there, you will always come back to it. He wants to free you from that, whatever that is. And that's a process he wants to initiate right now with you. Maybe you're here and you haven't come to see that Jesus is abundant life. You don't know him well enough. You haven't been around a community that reflects his character. And he wants to begin right now to let you trust and see, to put his life and words in practice, to be with a family of people who can hold that life with you as you explore it. Taste and see that he is good. Taste and see that he is love and compassion. He is not judgment. He is not stale religiosity. He is life and life to the fullest. Maybe that's you. And as we sing, we love to pray. I just want to give you a moment. Oh, can I begin there? If you're here, we're going to sing together, stand and sing. But if you're resonating with that, if there's a specific thing you feel Jesus urging you to lay down, would you come forward? This relationship that you just have to lay down, a call to generosity, or maybe just that you're hearing this for the first time and going, Lord, I long for that abundant life, and I want to walk, I want to carry my brokenness to you, whatever that looks like. Or maybe you just want to taste and see, and you want to have your first encounter with the risen Lord. Would you come, and let's just bless that the Spirit might come. But as we stand and sing, would you come? 
Our prayer team will be up here.